Okay, Piedmont Fugitive sends $30. The Stop the ADL campaign was successful because it pushed on an issue that was ripe for widespread engagement. Any thoughts on other issues we might push on? And are there other issues that would be premature to push on publicly? Matt, what's your answer to that? I think a lot of it, a reason why the ban the ADL campaign was successful was it really had the Alinskyite fundamentals to gain traction, right? It targeted in on this specific corrupt organization, which was headed by a really ghoulish and unpleasant corrupt leader of the organization, Jonathan Greenblatt. That, that, that you know, reminds me, you're old enough to remember, uh, no, no offense, to remember Abe Foxman, like how like much of a, a hustler he was compared to this, to this guy how far the ADL has fallen and, and what a great what a great face of an organization this guy is if you're going after this organization. Green is such a contemptible guy. He's such an arrogant yeah. you, know. Uh, <laughs> you know, Abe Foxman was horrible optics. Uh, you know, he looked like a Der Sturmer cartoon. He looked like an A. Wyatt Mann cartoon. <laughs> and yet I look back on him and he seems like a great statesman compared to Greenblatt, who is is very unphotogenic, but his whole manner lacks dignity. And Foxman, okay, in terms of his messaging, Foxman, uh, the the ADL had a very, you know, they were highly partisan, obviously, but in sort of routine ways of framing things, they were highly respectful. They they treated themselves like a serious organization, and. Greenblatt doesn't have that kind of messaging discipline. Uh, He's he's unphotogenic, he's sloppy, he's shrill. And uh, I I think the organization has, has declined. And this is one of the things that's so obvious about our elites. They are declining with each generation. Across the board, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, and, at, at the United the right trial, they were like, "We're we're going to bring these, you know, big law, you know, Jewish attorneys, the best from across the country, up against you." And I saw that, you know, they they were arguing and they were doing their thing. I was like, "These are not like to kill them. They're not impressive. These are." <laughs> and and they were just so tone deaf. They remind me a lot of Greenblatt in terms of like. They're really stuck in these like Manhattan cocktail parties. And when they leave the cocktail party, they go talk a jury that contains Trump voters, right? They, they go talk on Twitter in the same language and framing from those sad little, very echo chambery. And, and that's, that's something we got to watch for on our side too, because our side, you, you get into this echo chamber where like you, you, you think all we need to be talking about is, is like the Holocaust and like, you know, uh, this and that. And it's like, wow, we've got to remain kind of relevant with the national conversation, pulling it in, in, in our direction. But, you know, the Greenblatt is an excellent example of how like out of touch a lot of these people who are riding on kind of institutional power mm-hmm. from the previous generation. And they, they they don't know how to steer the ship. They, you know, the, the context is changing. And, and like you said, you know, Foxman, you know, he's obviously like, if I were to draw you know, a picture of him, I would be you know, accused of anti-Semitism, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he, he always tried to frame his message as like this religious, it was bigger than politics. It was even bigger than religion. It was the biggest, you know, um, he had this kind of obnoxiously evangelical approach to him. And even if you rolled your eyes at it, which I did, this, this was a guy who was trying to push this greater vision. And with, with Greenblatt, it's like, you know, I'm, I got all this money behind me. I've got to use it to stop people from saying, you know, anything that, you know, uh, we as Jews don't like. Okay. Um, you're saying something we don't like. Um, we're going to use our money to stop you. You know, it's just a totally different, you know, yeah. it's just night and day. Um, and you, you saw that at the, at, at the trial too, where they were kind of making the, these shrill arguments. It, it, you had these attorneys arguing against Trump and trying to conflate us with Trump. Like right. I, was, I was sitting there with my attorney, who's also ethnically Jewish. Uh, he's great. I love Josh. But you know, we were just like so happy to see them being too caught up in their own frame to see how like they were associating us with normal Republicans and yeah. you know uh, <laughs> framing framing the unite the right battle. And it really was more like that, right? It was it was a Confederate you know heritage rally. The, this whole thing. It was a 
you know, a Nazi terror march and stuff was, was fabricated later um, in, in service of the trial. And, you know, I, I just went there and, and you know, as a permitted rally to defend my people uh, and my statue and my history and heritage. I have Confederate heritage. But uh, to, to watch them uh, get this tone deaf and, you know, have all this money that they can spray out of a fire hose, but it doesn't actually achieve anything. Like, like you say, uh, you know, we have people, you know, listening to this who have ratioed and spoken louder than the ADL, despite their $11 billion that they have to, you know, make sure that they win the argument. So it's, it's awesome. I, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to be in the middle of this fight in this fight, pushing these ideas. Right. Uh, evil people, corrupt societies, they consume the future. And, and, and that's what I see in America across the board. We have a corrupt society that is not only consuming the present, but they're consuming the future. And the almost obvious, of course, is massive debts and things like that, right? This is the Republican line. But there's some truth to that. They're, they're consuming the future as well as what they have in the present. But the more subtle way that they do that is by smothering future generations by not raising up future generations that can actually take their place. It's like they're afraid of future generations. Maybe maybe just Gen X is just proceeding at such a rapid pace, but I, I don't think it's that. I think that what's happening is that we're miseducating the future. We're not bringing up people who can replace us. And so you've got this bizarre situation now where you've got this enfeebled gerontocracy that's clinging to power. And then a generation below them, there's this great void. And then you have these clueless Gen Pisaki types, these, mm -hmm. these goofy, goofy, hysterical millennials in the president's office and in various congressional offices, these people are not serious. These people have no education. These people had no parenting. They were the first generation where half their parents, uh, you know, were divorced. And this is a, a, there's a great changeover of power that's going to take place. And it's not going to get better, unfortunately. And uh, I, I just think about our old movement in America. There are many leading figures who are in their 70s. Uh, Kevin McDonald will be 80 next year. We need a next generation of people to come up and take their places. I'm thinking about my own mortality, and I'm trying to find people who are over 30, of course, because I don't trust anybody under 30, but over 30 and mature and qualified to try and bring them into these roles because we won't be here forever. And, and I, I, I just think that that is something that if we practice consistently will help us give us a systematic advantage against the establishment, which is not doing that. They have all this stuff crowing about, oh, the future leaders of America, et cetera. But they, they feed their, their minds, or they don't feed their minds, they, they feed their minds junk food. They, they starve them. They go to Harvard University and they don't know anything. Their minds are filled with swap. These people are not capable of running an advanced society. And they're going to be coasting along on institution, institutional power that's handed to them, money and power, but they don't have the human capital to make good use of that. So I, I, I am somewhat hopeful about that, but we can't, as a, as a counter movement, make the same mistakes. Well, I've, I, I've always been big on you know, my catchphrase, mentorship, stewardship, and solidarity. And with mentorship, I've, I've had my mentorship go exceedingly well. I've had it blow up in my face, but I don't regret that mentorship to, you know, um, I find somebody who's talented and younger than you and give them the tools to do a, a you know, a, a great job to keep moving this thing forward, to keep, you know, to, especially when you're a dissident with this kind of power dynamic, you've almost got to be thinking in terms of like, you know, um, 20, you know, 
uh, 30 years ahead, right? You, you can't be fighting yeah. yesterday's battles, which kind of reminds me that the person who asked the question and, and sent super chat, yeah, you know, he asked what, what's next. And uh, my best answer for that, like right now, you, you have all these conservative Republican candidates throwing real money at trying to win, right? You've got Mike Pence desperately trying to be relevant. And they're, they're all scrambling for these Zionist uh, military contractor donations. Uh, you, you have Nikki Haley, you have, I don't even remember all their names. I'm, I, I'm as good as the, the audience in terms of like being like, who are these people who are not Trump, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, on, on their Twitter accounts and on their social media, they're all pushing this very aggressive, you know, warmonger message. And you, you, you really have an opportunity there to, you know, push them on the Israel lobby to push them on, you know, the the, their Zionist connections and they're eager. They wear a little pin of a foreign country when they're on the debate stage. You know, I'm loyal to this country um, of Israel while they're running for president of this country. That's uh, egregious stuff that resonates with people who aren't even really on our side as far as like why, you know, that's a bit much. But they're, they're desperate, right? And that creates an opportunity for us to go in there and expose that hypocrisy and expose how desperate these Republican candidates are for Zionist money, right? And uh, um, because they're all because they're all paying to be promoted, paying to promote each one of their tweets, and they're they're not really able to close down their replies, or they'll look like they're on the run. You have a real opportunity there for your 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 replies and you know your your critiques of them to to reach a larger audience. That's where I think the uh, some of the more fun stuff you can do. Obviously, this ban the ADL campaign isn't isn't over yet. I, I'm I'm going to continue hammering away at that for some time. Yeah. You know? Right. the The other part of the question was, do you think there are any issues that might be a little premature to go hard on? I mean, I, I would say that like explicit uh, racialism and anti-Semitism. Are, are not where we need to be in the popular conversation. That doesn't mean to disavow those positions. That doesn't mean to hide those positions even, but that's not really where the energy is in transforming the culture right now. A, a kind of a white civil rights argument is, is what can actually move the culture war in our direction. And you, know, you have these voices who are saying, well, we got to forget complaining that whites are not being treated fairly or whatever. We, we got to demand are, are, you know, that white people take back control of America or whatever, which, you know, that, that's not my position anyway to like, you know, chase all these people off or just, I don't want to disenfranchise anybody. I don't think we need to, but uh, um, get, getting too far ahead with some of, some of the uh, more strident positions, I, I, I don't believe helps. And that's, that's coming from somebody who's entirely proudly on record as being like, I'm pro-white. I want my people to have a sovereign future of some form and some context. But at the same time, if, if you're trying to influence the popular conversation to uh, change the culture um, and, you know, pushing these ideas pushes individuals, which then pushes institutions, which eventually circles back around to a context where some of these more ambitious goals can be achieved. But you can't skip steps, right? Right. Okay. Uh, that's a good answer. Joey Buttafuoco has written in with five US dollars. You're a bunch of e-drama addicts wasting your time on this now <laughs> suddenly useless internet. Also, I'm going to use the internet to start e-drama with you in order to prove that the internet <laughs> is useless. Ha! I bet you weren't expecting that, were you? Uh, absolutely. I wasn't, I, I wasn't expecting that. It's like, it's, it's like I've never seen this before over the last <laughs> 20 odd years again and again and again. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Bortsdale writes in with 10 US dollars. Uh, false opposition, Caduceus, kosher sandwich are common labels. Caduceus, somebody's going to have to explain that to me, uh, are common labels that are starting to lose their impact when groups like the Proud Boys, which are effectively liberals, are getting life sentences. How should we distinguish genuinely depoliticizing or de-radicalizing phenomena in 2023? Uh, can you answer that? And I'll, can you tell me what Caduceus in this context means as well? Um, I, I, I've heard that. I don't. I was hoping you would know what Caduceus means. Um, I'm an autodidact. Uh, there's some major holes in my education. I, I, I wonder if this is coming out of the Apollonian sphere. Or, I, I, I do believe. Um, well, the, the Apollonians have announced a Thargalia against me. Um, a I'm, what? A Thargalia. A what? I'm a, I'm a pharmacoy. 
okay, uh, these these people are are, are beyond uh, <laughs> are beyond parody. Yeah, uh, I'm a bona fide pharmacoid. That's, that's I can live with that. I'll accept that. But uh, I, as soon as I find out what it means, I'll accept it and live with it. Um, <laughs> it sounds terrible. It, it uh, is. I, I, it's the worst thing ever from their uh, telling it. So I guess uh, I I guess I need to find out what what I you know what's going on with that. But as, as far as like. Um, uh, de-radicalization, uh, you know, that this this is this is a real struggle, and we have real political prisoners, and you know, uh, we 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 must support them. You know, with with the Proud Boys, I would say, like, you know, that to the extent that they uh, disavowed and attacked um, identitarians early on, I wouldn't be like, I I wouldn't um, have like uh, any kind of uh, shade and fraud or um, uh, take what happened to them lightly. But at the same time, like they, they can dig into their own wallets, especially while we have explicitly our guys, our guys um, who who need who need your help first and foremost, um, uh, who you know um, who who are being politically persecuted. So, I do think that okay, there there's a guy who gave us the Proud Boys, Gavin McGinnis, who the moment things got hot, the moment thing, the moment people actually turned the Proud Boys into something more than just a fratty joke, which was what he wanted to do. He disavowed them and, and scuttled away to safety. Obviously, all of his messaging was against us. It was de-radicalizing. It was de-racializing. I love what Emily Yukas did with him. Just say you want a future for white children, and he wouldn't say that. You know, he... He's a real weasel, and obviously this was a this was a de-radicalizing strategy, or maybe not. Maybe it's it's just who Gavin is, but it was a gatekeeping strategy. You can't go into white identity politics and to show how committed we are to to not going white. We're going to get the most rainbow coalition of Trump tards we can possibly well, cobble together. I mean that that was his intention, but now because of the multiplier effect the lever the multiplier effect of left-wing hysteria what these people have been they have been memed into enemies of the republic and what was a de-radicalizing op put together by gavin mcginnis and then abandoned the moment things got hot is now a cause celeb for radicalizing more people by showing how corrupt and insane and unjust our leadership is uh, I, I think it's kind of a wonderful irony. Go ahead. Well, it gets even more ironic than that. Um, at the Battle of Sacramento in uh, 2016, uh, the Traditionalist Worker Party um, held a permitted event against Antifa attacks on Trump rallies at the Sacramento Courthouse, at the California State Courthouse. And they, they, the Antifa, it, it was funny, they they had a big bail fund that ended up becoming a medical fund because they, it, despite absolutely ridiculous, you know, three hundred film level uh, 400 of them versus 25 of the, the the trad worker and Golden State guys they ended up instigating and then losing the fight and Gavin was really excited about that on his show he said I would love to see that like Trump goons um, but without without that nasty pro-white stuff okay uh, and that was actually he he just openly was discussing that on his show, and that's where the the idea for Proud Boys came from was kind of a, a trad worker, but without the white identity politics. Okay, that was the the goal from the beginning, explicitly stated on his show. And what what's funny was when I saw you know uh, the Battle of Sacramento as a director, I was like. Oh shit! This is really escalating in uh, into a way that we're going to be the the power dynamics are such that we're going to be crushed by the state, because the 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 state is moving uh, in ways that, you know because one of our guys uh, uh, William Planer ended up going to prison for a couple of years uh, when for just self defense like point blank self defense like you can't even get more like straight up like a, an angry mob of people who posted online we are going to attack these people at a permitted location da 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 and he defended himself. And he still got arrested. So I looked at that as like, okay, we need to like think smarter about how we do this or we're all going to get arrested. So you, you had this sort of, sort of like, I was like, okay, we need to go the other way with it. And I didn't go fast enough, right? Because we still ended up getting in some trouble 
at Unite the Right. They ended up, you know, contributing to the unraveling of the project and everything. So uh, we, we still ended up getting caught up to a degree. At least it was a civil a civil entanglement rather than a criminal entanglement with Tradworker at, at, at Unite the Right. But he, he went on the other direction, and, and sure enough, he inspired all these men to follow this problematic strategy right into federal prison. And, you know, look, looking back on that, I, I'm, I'm glad that we moved in the right direction away from the public confrontation in districts that have an idea of what self-defense means, have an idea of what, you know, if, if you're the white guy, then the jury does not like you, like O.J. Simpson on steroids kind of like collars this guy, is he innocent or guilty? Um, the, the, the kind of atmosphere you have in, in these places and that's, that's, you know, with, with, with J6, I, I was like trying to discourage that the whole time. And I, I, I support our political prisoners on J6 and one of the reasons to support Trump, better yet, Vivek, um, who's made a more direct promise, is you, you can potentially get them get them pardoned, right? So it's sort of a political necessity, in my opinion. But at the same time, like we, we do have to look at this and, and be like, okay, this this is a context where we can't win and need to move towards context where we can win, to, to, to host events in places where there's still an attitude of civil liberties, uh, still uh, an innocent until proven guilty, you know, understand general understanding among the jurors and, you know, the courthouse. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I, the, the whole trajectory of the Proud Boys is tragic and, and, and Gavin is despicable for like uh, inspiring that and encouraging that and then kind of jumping off the train he built and just kind of watching off to the side as everybody in the train, you know, died in a fire. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure he feels very clever about the whole thing. ABC writes in with 10 us dollars. Basically he says, Africans hate us because of colonialism, American blacks because of slavery, American Indians, and so on. And yet they flourish today in large numbers and don't live in the stone age anymore. Who weaponizes them? Um, uh, who, who, uh, weapon, I mean, uh, first of all, there's like a, an underlying like organic resentment uh, that's just part of the human condition, right? That um, you, you see somebody who's doing better than you, your neighbor's doing better than you, you're jealous of him, it tales all this time. Uh, there, there's also, you know, Professor McDonald's work in Culture of Critique. We, we have these um, ancient ethnic rivals who very much seek to mobilize these other groups against Western civilization for their own prerogatives, and that's deeply embedded in their culture and their habits of thinking and behaving. They they want to figure out how to you know sort of franchise their their culture of resentment into these little cultures of resentment that that it is kind of the modern civil rights movement. But then additionally, you, you do have real geopolitical currents, right? Where like in the 1960s, in addition to all this culture critique stuff, which is absolutely part of the story, um, half the story, but you, you also have like the fact that like uh, the Soviet Union was calling America racist and everything. Um, and the United States government, it was a real CIA prerogative to make sure we were winning the cultural war. And this is where the uh, winning the moral argument matters, right? Like uh, America's losing the moral argument because the Soviet Union was hammering them on how the blacks are mistreated and they have their own separate water fountains. And that was a huge driver behind the pressure to pass the Civil Rights Act, which was very sloppily drafted in ways that the I, I, I think a lot of the authors and original voters would have never been on board with how, how it's been extended and abused into what it is today. And... Uh, there's also, you know, I, I, I do have to add that there were uh, legitimate grievances that we stepped on a lot of toes in arriving at our the geopolitical position we arrived in. I think I, I think one has to kind of also um, be mindful of that while also going against the people who are trying to weaponize us against us. We we don't have anybody we need to be apologizing to, but 
you know, look, looking at this uh, band, the ADL campaign and stuff, uh, you know, I was on the space and it was, uh, it was the one where Keith ended up asking the, you know, asking the lady if she worked for Black Cube and she melted down the most hilarious way. If anybody in the audience hasn't uh, heard that clip, you got to hear it. It, it. Keith just totally uh, destroys this woman on impact. But what was interesting was like the majority of the voices were like these Indians or Middle Easterners or Latin Americans. And their attitudes and opinions on like colonialism and American populism and stuff were not the stereotype that you hear a lot in the white nationalist community or that's projected a lot in the media and what the kind of neoliberal assumption is. They're not seething with hatred at us necessarily. And there, there are a lot of opportunities to win our pro-white moral arguments in that broader context without jumping into this bunker mentality of like, oh, we're white and everybody hates us, the world's out to get us, we might as well be evil anyway because everybody hates us so bad, wah, wah, wah. That's just, if you're, you know, and these spaces are so great because it's just like this, you know, mosh pit of random people from all over the world arguing about this stuff. And it's 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 pro-white ideas can win. In fact, they, they can win there better in a lot of ways, because these kind of like foreign, these Indians and even Africans and stuff, a lot of times they don't have a lot of the Western hangups and stuff, like a lot of the Western taboos. Like, you know, when a, when a white American is talking and he's kind of getting close to like Jewish power, third rail stuff, he'll get nervous. Even if he's like trying to go after, he's still like, there's enough cultural conditioning there. Whereas a lot of these like Indians and stuff will just run right through it. Don't give a shit. It's, it's not their problem. It's not their history. This, this Jewish guy is wrong. Screw him. You know, it's, it's kind of right. refreshing. And th this idea that like it's whites against the rest of the world. I just reject that. I don't see the evidence for it. I, it hasn't been my experience at all. I, I, I believe that in, in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of the global South is sympathetic to, to white Americans culturally and even historically. There's one thing I, I do want to challenge in the question. It, it goes very close to this kind of argument. I remember Richard Spencer giving this argument once to this black reporter. Just admit that you're better off because of slavery and colonialism. And I always thought that was an extremely tone deaf argument. Well, I, I think he was just doing it to be provocative. But it, it doesn't wash. You can say it, it's may be perfectly true. It may be perfectly true that Blacks in America have longer lifespans because their ancestors were brought over in chains. But, you know, there's more to life than material indications of comfort. And the, the whole dimension of human dignity is just dropped out of that. You, you might as well say you, you are happy slaves, uh, as if uh, as if uh, being enslaved was not not in, in itself an affront to human dignity, no matter how comfortable one might be. One might be a happier slave than uh, a free man, but it's still better to be free. So I don't like that kind of it's very materialist. It's very bourgeois kind of argument. I have an article at uh, the Occidental Observer. I think it's over a decade old now where I review a film, Mugabe and the White African. And. It's 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 fascinating. It, it, it kind of chronicles kind of the last Rhodesian, former Rhodesian, the last white farmers as they're getting chased out of Zimbabwe, and like you you see these these farmers who are like, I'm I'm trying to help you. Why don't I employ you? You'll get a lot of money. And you you had these you know uh, Africans who are like, I don't want your money. I don't care. Um, I want control over my future. And so many of these arguments, like the one that, you know, Spencer uh, um, promotes and that they're so common as far as like, you know, well, we brought more stuff there. You don't like your stuff. Um, it's like people and we should have more of this. Right. Um, we should. Uh, people want control over their destiny more than they want stuff. And that's very healthy. I think uh, ain't it a shame speaking as the great, great, great grandson of a Confederate soldier who owned, uh, owned three, uh, three slaves and, you know, lost them, lost them in the war that we, we can look at that and be like, that's not really the, where we should be sending our arguments. That should not be our goal. We, we should take this idea that people want control of their own destiny and say that, you know what, everyone should. We want that. control of our destiny too. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I don't want to be caught up in, in defending colonialism and imperialism in the past. I, I can just, I can disavow it. I can say I completely sympathize with 
colonized peoples because that's what's happening to me. And I can see that my homeland and my future is being taken away from me. And I don't want that for myself. And I'm a universalist, morally speaking, and I understand why other people don't want it for them either. I believe in basic moral reciprocity, do unto others as you would have others do, do unto you, etc. And it just ends there. I do not see why so many people want to get caught up in, in, in basically defending the indefensible. Well, um, there, there is a sympathetic as far as like, I don't want to apologize for my forefathers, right? I don't want to, you know, and, you know, I, I, I don't. Um, my, you know, my great, great, great grandfather in his time and place, his, the, the decisions he made were, were in a different time and place. And there, there were, there was a lack, there was a scarcity then that we don't have now. We have a very abundant world, a very abundant society where we can move forward from, yeah, I mean, obviously, like the ancient civilizations, uh, including just white on white slavery, right, was necessary to kind of get to the point where they got to the point where they no longer had to do that, right? And we, we, we should be excited about being able to get to the point where, you know, I mean, I, I had ancestors, my Norman ancestors did a lot of raping and pillaging, I'm sure. Further back, I'm sure there was a lot of cannibalism. It, it's just a silly thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like trying to center our arguments on the Holocaust. It's like, hey... Um, how are you doing today? I want to talk to you about how many people died um, in a concentration camp. Um, I think the number is lower. Some people say it's higher. That's fat. Like, why would you, if you're trying to reach people with your ideas, start there? And it's kind of the same way with like, hey, when my ancestors a few decades ago were really on a roll, we took a bunch of your stuff and, uh, you know, kind of humiliated your people. How about that? Wasn't that awesome? Um, yeah. it, what a nice icebreaker for a conversation. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's a transgressive mentality in our cause, and it's caused by a, a lot of a, a lot of the people in this cause are actually uh, there for the transgression. They're excited. They they get they, they, you know, if you tell your parents you're a Satanist, they'll they'll you know help you buy your your satanic shrine on Etsy and you know support your new Satanism hobby. Um, the only way to be transgressive in today's environment with a lot of people is to you know be a wicked racist and th they, they show up in our subculture and they have the worst advice possible on purpose because their goal is sort of rejecting society uh, 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 you know before it can reject them it, it's a it's a defensive uh, ego protection thing that that you you have with these subcultures and it's you know it's it, it's always been there right mm -hmm. yeah let's see if we got some more questions here Joey Barafuoco sends another 10 US dollars. All right. Thank you, Joey. Yeah. Explain to me why Elon Musk deplatforms, insert activist org. Some say he was throwing a bone to the ADL after receiving financial pressure, but I think it's far more realistic that on behalf of Peter Thiel, he paid $42 billion to purchase Twitter so he could ban, insert activist org. Your thoughts? Uh, well, my, my thought is uh, thank you, uh, Elon, for uh, banning uh, Insert Activist Org from the platform. I don't care. Um, it's not my business. If, if they're going to go around uh, calling people controlled opposition and making in, uh, um, despicable attacks and lying about what they're they're doing and just being general jerks, then maybe it's better that they not be on a plat uh, be on the platform because they obviously don't know how to how to you know how to behave so I don't care. <laughs> I, I so don't care. Um, there are a lot of great, there are important voices like Jared Taylor, Professor McDonald, uh, so many more, I'm sure a lot in the audience even, I'm not making light of that. And yeah, Elon hasn't delivered on his promise. But at the, at the end of the day, whichever corporation is running social media, it's, it's not going to be a platform that will allow like bragging about how eager you are to kill minority children and, and other garbage you get on this insert activist uh, uh, organization. And, uh, you know, we, we just have to step over that kind of garbage. That's well said. I have some questions here from our mutual friend, Gaddius Maximus. Oh, just let me find those questions. Uh, first of all, Norse Nature has donated a diamond and one lemon donator has donated one lemon. Thank you very much. Uh, Gaddia sends 10 US dollars. That was one of Blump's first A-logs 
with his classic, let's not be Trump's chumps essay at Countercurrent, shortly after Trump announced in 2015. Gentlemen, looking back now, how does it hold up? And looking ahead, what, what are your feelings towards the big orange bastard? We already talked about this a little bit, but go ahead. I, I will say, folks, that um, I really liked that piece. That's why I published it, uh, Let's Not Be Trump's Chumps. Let's use him and not let him use us. I wish a lot of people had followed that advice. Uh, they, they ended up getting used by the guy rather than using him as a way of getting our memes and message across. That being said, what are your thoughts? Do you have any more afterthoughts about Trump? Well, uh, first, I just wish to gloat about how well that piece is uh, aged. I, I read it a couple months ago again. And I was like, man, that, that uh, of all the 2015 Trump takes, I'm so happy to stand behind mine. <laughs> and uh, er, earlier this week, you know, Trump was attacking Ann Coulter. And, you know, I, I say, you know, I, I will be supporting Trump in the in the coming months as, as a necessity. But uh, make no mistake that, uh, you know, I'm loyal to Queen Anne. Right. I've, I've always uh, thought that a Ann Coulter had been moving uh, politics in a uh, prescient tribal direction. I, I think a lot of his 2016 campaign was directly borrowed from Ann Coulter's books that he read around that time. I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of hers. Well, well, understanding that she's, you know, she's not us, but as far as mainstream political figures go, big fan. But yeah, I, that's that's kind of my advice in 2024 is let's, we, we've got to have our own message and our own priorities while also not hesitating to kind of um, engage, in, engage in the popular struggle where it's at, right? Absolutely. People are going to be tuning into politics again, and we need to take that as an opportunity to get our voices in the conversation. And it's as simple as that. It's, an, it's a grand opportunity for us. We see traffic and engagement go up during election cycles. It's just the way people are. We wish that people were as politically engaged as we politics nerds at all times, but that's just not realistic. And so when they do get re-engaged, we have to take advantage of it and not turn our noses up at it and act like, you know, the princess with the pea under her mattress or something like that. Well, that's, uh, the, that's the thing. Uh, not to cut you off, but I have to cut you off because like being frustrated about how Trump wasn't everything we hoped it could be is really such a driver of this sort of like, let's not engage the public sphere anymore because it hurt our feelings in 2017. And that is uh, such a bad take. And it's such a dominant take in our circles. It's like, oh, oh well, you're, you're hyping a candidate's message. Oh, well, you're, you know, you're retweeting Elon Musk. Well, don't you remember that Donald Trump hurt us? <laughs> yeah. Like the, yeah. Well, I, I never thought Donald Trump was the God Emperor. So I, I didn't have that, like, whatever you're suffering from, having found out he's not the guy. I don't think Elon Musk is the God Emperor. Uh, but by God, while Elon Musk is like going after the ADL, the richest man in the world is going after the most visible, prominent uh, purveyor of Jewish racketeering uh, of our political system. Uh, be all into that, you know? I mean, you know, just don't. <laughs> Don't get so wound up about it that you think Elon Musk is is the next Messiah or whatever, like so many people did with Donald Trump in 2016. But we, you know, you, you got to get up, stop crying about how poor, you know, how how disappointed you are with Trump. And like I was one of those people, right? But you, you got to get up and shake yourself off after a tragedy and move on, right? You know, this right. is still happening. Right. Uh, Gaddis also sent another ten bucks and wanted to talk about Keith's great service with the. Uh, Twitter campaign. Uh, we've already discussed that. Uh, we uh, definitely do not think this is deplorable slacktivism. And he sent a third $10 donation. Thank you very much. You. The, the Oliver Anthony thing has divided, has had had a divided reaction in this sphere over the past few weeks, provoked, uh, provoked quite a bit of class envy and class warfare talk. I know Matt is a working class type. What does he think about the class dynamics surrounding Oliver Anthony? Did you like the song? Um, I, I did enjoy the song. I was nervous when people got uh, kind of carried away about him being our guy because I, I, I could kind of tell through the lyrics and stuff that he's uh, um, not our guy in any strict sense. 
But uh, I mean, the thing is, even if he denies it uh, with his with his message and stuff, he he fell on our half, our side of the the partisan polarity, and his, the song and its lyrics and uh, the general message of it is very much part of that like credibility crisis I was speaking about earlier, right? Where people just don't trust. They understand that the people who are running the society are against them, are not on their team, um, are hostile to them and are hostile to their interests. He, he's not, you know, framing or understanding it in explicitly white identitarian terms or whatever. I don't care. But I, I think it's the kind of thing you, you can just vibe with. I, I vibed with it, and, you know, uh, but that's kind of a good example, say, when it's the Trump thing. Like, you, you get these people who are like, oh, well, we, you know, we, we have our new folk hero in this guy, and he turns out not exactly being everything they imagined, and they get mad at him. It's like, no, the, the, this guy is part of this larger story of Western civilization in general and our people and our movement in particular uh, moving in the right direction at a really rapid pace and uh, losing faith in the elites, in these institutions. And and that loss of faith, that that's the fertile ground for the growth of, of our, our bigger ideas, right? Yeah, one of the driving forces of national populism is distrust in the establishment, distrust in elites. Oliver Anthony named the regime that we have. He named it as an oligarchy, uh, which is true, an oligarchy that's hostile and out of touch, that is concentrated north of Richmond. It's the Eastern liberal oligarchical establishment. I didn't think he, he made any major errors there. I wasn't crazy about the song, but... The, you know, I, the, I think uh, Pox Populi had a really good take. Uh, he said uh, part of the part of the reason why there was all this discussion about it is that people people have platforms now and they they can discuss it, and therefore there's just a, a dynamic at work just uh, generating harsh, paranoid, unpopular, denigrating takes on on cultural phenomena like this. And you got to have really thick skin uh, to be an artist in a context like this, because you know, suddenly you get all these strangers second guessing you and saying, oh, but he's got man boobs or, or stuff like, you know, Anglin of all people was going off on stuff like that. I, I respect anybody who's got the, uh, the thick skin to, to deal with this kind of low crappy human behavior that the internet has uh, amplified. It's the downside of the internet. The, the upside of the internet, of course, is that it does give us a voice. And uh, it has, I think, brought about uh, the decline of the, uh, the existing political establishment. It's worked to our benefit overall, but it does have a downside. And part of that downside is just... Um, creating these uh, sort of frenzies of denigration for somebody that, you know, maybe we shouldn't just have an opinion on Oliver Anthony. I think it's permissible not to have an opinion about Oliver Anthony at all. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I gave him a general thumbs up, but, uh, you know, uh, I hope, hope, hope to hear more from him, but, you know. Uh, I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the guy because what happened was, People on the right liked him. People on the left really didn't like him. Apparently, NPR had an entire hour where they had experts coming on to uh, talk about the disinformation in his songs and the sins like fat shaming and stuff like that. And this guy was subjected to the rainbow terror. I don't think he was pre uh, prepared for this. A lot of people in our movement, when the, the microphone is shoved in their face, they're not prepared for it. I don't think this guy was prepared at all. Uh, and so suddenly he's coming out with the, 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 the principles of the, the, the diversity catechism. I think we should have a little bit of sympathy and solidarity for this guy. Uh, he, he got the kind of treatment that a lot of our guys have gotten when they've been doxxed. Uh, so anyway, Oliver Anthony, I hope he thrives. And I'm just going to not have an opinion on him. My radical act in the future is the next time he puts out a song, I'm not going to have an opinion at all. Cockney Nut Job has donated one diamond. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Norse Nature writes, I thought the song was good. It's our job to use it as best we can. Yeah. Ultimately, it's all on us. You know, the quality of the song is neither here nor there. 
what use can we make of it? That's, and, and that's all on us. Yeah. Even a bad song can be highly useful. I'm just looking through some of the comments here. Red Dog 555 says, give us free and open debate and we can slaughter them. We have the moral high ground, the data and reality on our side. Absolutely. He says we have uh, lots of high quality people on our side. Absolutely. David Zuddy writes in a lot of lawyers and law students are surprisingly stupid and vapid liberal arts students who didn't know what to do next. This is true. These are tomorrow's leaders. <laughs> Truth is a deadly weapon. Wishing an intellectual type would uh, nudge people into notion. ADL is there to subvert discussion, legit criticism of financial ease destroying us. This is true. Norse Nature writes in, we need our people of every skill level and interest. That's what makes a society. You need janitors and professors. This is against the snobby thing, the uh, eugenics snob thing. Goy Boy Esau writes in, why can't the mainstream right just be right about taking care of sick and elderly people? They'd be tolerable without that work or die paradigm. Absolutely. This is one of the things that I loved about the Lind book, The New Class War. He identified, based on some polling, a number of things that I've sort of known all along. This is also something that Eatwell and Goodwin's National Populism has helped me substantiate. That in the, but in the United States, most Republican types are to the left of the party on things like Social Security, uh, safety nets, and things like this. What what Americans actually want is this. They want a somewhat socially conservative interventionist state that takes the side of working and middle-class people against powerful moneyed interests. And they're never allowed to vote on that as a package. Instead, what you get is you will, will get the social conservatism will be packaged with free market economics and apologetics, slob, slobbery blowjobs to oligarchs, right? This is what Republicans are, are all about. And then uh, the, the left, they'll give you the interventionist state, but it's packaged in with social pause, with total degeneracy. And so, but what most voters want and what a, an absolutely unbeatable block of voters want is what populists offer, which again is a somewhat socially conservative interventionist state that takes the side of ordinary people against powerful moneyed interests. If we were allowed to vote on that, whoever give, gives us that would have a permanent lock on power. But the preferences of the elites are to the exact opposite. The elites want social degeneracy, social liberalism, and oligarchy, because that's who they are. They're, they're rich and they're leftist. And so what happens is we have this artificial division between Republican and Democrat, and they trade offices, you know, with each election cycle, uh, they use negative legitimation. So uh, the Republicans get in because they're not those dastardly Democrats. And they say things that the electorate likes. And then they get in. And then you find that when the Republicans are in power, suddenly the socially conservative stuff gets on the back burner. And what they actually deliver is all kinds of goodies for oligarchs. And then people get angry at that. So they wrote the Democrats in and the Democrats, well, they're going to allow the welfare state to wither away because of austerity measures, but they're going to be going hard on giving hormones to children. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it, it just repeats over and over again. And with each election cycle, the people become more dissatisfied and the oligarchy, the elites become more satisfied. They've set that system up to work for them, and they always seem to get what they want in the end, where, where, where while there is this pretense of a circulation of elites and a pretense of popular government. And people are just sick and tired of it, and they're seeing through it increasingly, and, well, and, and Lind is, is very good on this. So go it, ahead. It's, it's moving in the right direction, though. Like, if you, if you watch the 
the presidential primary debate, the uh, the no Trump no show. And what was interesting was like the the candidates would say these Reaganite things, and the audience would just crickets. Um, <laughs> And you, you could tell they were just trying to like check off what their donors need to hear to get their next check. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, if you remember 10, 20 years ago, you could bring the house down with like, uh, we, we got to cut taxes and we got to, you know, da, 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 da. Everybody would have been extremely excited about that. Um, but uh, as you have this partisan polarity and you have this crystallization into kind of tribal camps, a lot of these people in the kind of Republican tribal camp have no interest whatsoever in the small business Republican, let the poor people choke mentality. They have, uh, they're very concerned about affordable family formation and right there in the middle of that with young families and stuff. And they, you know, they, they would have been a, a sort of a Democrat in a previous era, but they, they've been forced because their skin is white and they you know are uh, don't belong on the other camp they're they're diehard no matter what republicans now because that's their team and that, that's that's changing the gop in a lot of ways that the gop elites uh, are uh, exceedingly unhappy with and we'll, we'll see where it goes but yeah let's see if there's some more comments or questions in the chat here i don't want to leave anybody out ABC. ABC writes back with another ten U.S. dollars. My point in the previous question was that many non-white races don't live in a shitty Stone Age condition anymore because of the white race, and they should be made aware of it. That's all. Okay, that's that's all well and good, ABC. But here's the thing: I, I think that if we say that, we're going to come off as kind of materialistic and tone deaf because man can't live by bread alone, and Pride is an important thing, a sense of agency and power, a sense of controlling one's own destiny. Those are important things. And those are the things that were taken away in order to give them roads or vaccines or Catholic schools uh, or whatever uh, benefits uh, were, were given to these people in colonial conditions. So, yes, they live, they have flush toilets now. But they also have a legitimate rankling sense that they have been uh, robbed of something. And they haven't been robbed of their squat toilets. They've been robbed of their sense of dignity and agency. And there are, many very, there are very many concrete and legitimate objections that they have. And therefore, I don't want to... I don't want to get into that debate, honestly. Uh, yeah, okay, if people say, you owe us, Whitey, because of these horrible things that have happened. The, the proper response to that, in my view, is this. You never suffered anything because of colonialism, and I never benefited because of colonialism. And this is just a shakedown. It's basically uh, a lot of these people are saying, Alain de Benoit put this nicely. It said, usually it takes the form of people who have suffered nothing in their personal lives demanding payments from people who have done nothing to them because of past historical injustices. And of course, uh, there's always a very selective remembering of the past. The Indians remember the massacres against them. They don't remember the massacres that they launched against white people. At a certain point, if you just go back into the history of it, and you look at it, you just realize you could, you could spend the rest of your life litigating over historical wrongs. And my attitude towards this was expressed in a very short piece back during the Floyd year, the year of Floyd, called Amnesty or Ancestors. What is an amnesty? Well, an amnesty is basically a decision to forget about things. And the, the best example of this took place in 1660 in England. It was an act of indemnity and oblivion. And basically what it was is the parliament declared an indemnity and oblivion of every crime that was committed during the Civil War and the Interregnum, the Cromwell period. Why? Because it was more important to make peace and go forward into the future than it was to threaten the newly created peace by relitigating 
every bad thing that happened during the Civil War and the Interregnum. And so it was declared a crime to bring up these historical wounds, to pick these historical wounds. It was, it was actually criminal to talk about these things. The, hence the act of oblivion. And the indemnity was that no one, no one can be punished for these things, but you can't even talk about them. I believe that we should do that. I believe that we should have an act of indemnity and oblivion for all past crimes. We should, I would love it. If I were president, I would pass an amnesty to all slave owners and slave traders and say, it's over. It's forgotten. Nobody bears any guilt for this anymore. And if you try and make political hay out of it, you've committed a crime. Well, my, and people uh, can scream actually, about free speech, but you know that 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 would be a better way of going forward than just relitigating endlessly about colonial atrocities and stuff like that. Well, my my observation: if you get into the devolved, decentralized platforms and stuff like these Twitter spaces and these social media environments and stuff uh, that aren't controlled by the neoliberal establishment. Um, they, I, a lot of these people are already moved on from that. They, it, it's considered kind of cringe, you know, um, to drag all this stuff around. And you'll have white people who very stridently and proudly, like, you know, uh, shut them down point by point on the specific issues and everything. I believe a lot of this is really the, the, the neoliberal establishment feeds on and feeds these resentments and narratives as, as part of its neocolonial kind of agenda of justifying trying to create this moral justification for white genocide right um it'd be like well you know this this needs to keep happening um because of you know bad things you guys done in the past and we're, we're going to bring up the sad indian guy he's actually italian but we're up to he's an indian to you know make you feel bad about uh feel bad about that again and that that's why you should have illegal immigration and you should have these airport immigrants come over airport americans come over and be citizens because of you know that and it's like you, you, a lot of it you know you, you just kind of can step over like you, you don't need to win all all these like history hobbyist arguments um mm-hmm. and there's so much happening right now right there there's whatever you know whatever you're frustrated about that that that's uh that there's current politics happening there are people who exist today who are doing things as we speak that we can come after and we really shouldn't be coming after people from 100 or 200 or 300 years ago until we've held accountable every bastard who's being anti-white right here and now right absolutely <laughs> let's get the ones here <laughs> let's put the they- ones on blast you know the, the left, the left's position is basically, we shouldn't go too hard on these uh, BLM protesters and these Antifa. We should forgive and forget. <laughs> Why? Because of the historical crimes committed by white people 300 years ago. Yeah. And so it's, it's a completely rubber standard. You can never forgive and forget things that happened centuries ago if white people did it, but we can forgive and forget everything that non-whites are doing right now. And uh, we, we simply have to say, look, if you want peace going forward, we have to have indemnity and oblivion for past stuff. And we never want to hear a peep about this from you again. Of course, they, uh, you know, there are people with powerful interests who are going to keep these grievances alive. That's, that's absolutely well, they're true. Well, they're going to try, but I, I, I think in the mosh pit of uh, free and open free speech discourse that uh, they, they logistically can't stop, that stuff doesn't survive in the wild. You know, it, it, it's very much a, a panda kind of environment where you got to have the neoliberal zookeeper protecting these ideas, these bad ideas from any kind of outside factors, or they'll just get sad and die. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a good good metaphor. I, I think of Boyd Rice's line about the pandas, but I can't quote it uh, in this <laughs> podcast. Folks, uh, we've been going on for more than two hours. Matt, I really have enjoyed this. It's great to talk again. I hope you'll share your election commentary uh, with us in this current cycle uh, okay. at Countercurrents. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. And I'd like to do this again soon. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Folks, um, follow Matt. And Matt, tell them where 
they can follow you on social media. What are your platforms? Uh, Matthew Parrott, that's two R's, two T's, uh, dot substack.com. Uh, Matthew Parrott, spelled the same way, um, is uh, my Twitter handle, and also Matthew Parrott on Telegram. Uh, it's all just Matthew Parrott. Um, you, can, you can find me at any, uh, any of those uh, places where if you follow me on Twitter, you'll catch me arguing with a random loser. If you catch me on Telegram, you'll, you'll catch me uh, movement and fighting. And if you go over to Substack, you'll catch uh, my, my most recent think pieces. And uh, on all those, uh, if you disagree with me, I, I know uh, um, I, I sometimes come on strong with strong opinions, but uh, I, I will hear your side out and we, uh, um, but uh Thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, thank the people who supported Countercurrents. It's an important project. Uh, uh, as far as institutions go, um, uh, it's it's uh, stood the test of time as being someplace that you can invest in it, and uh, you, you will see the pro-white um, um, activism and action and ideas come out the other end. So it's, it's definitely I recommend supporting Countercurrents. Um, and uh, uh, thank you, Greg, for having me on. And this this has been enjoyable. And yeah, I, I uh, take up your offer. I'll I'll, I'll submit I'll, I'll submit some pieces to you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Next week, folks. Uh, first of all, to the audience, thank you uh, for to the audience. Thank you to the donors. Thank you to the moderators. You've all been great as usual. I will not be doing these streams for the next four weeks. Uh, I've got other engagements that I have to do. I'll be speaking uh, at various uh, locations uh, or meeting with people, et cetera. Uh, and so you can tune in, uh, though, for the regular Countercurrents radio streams. And we will have Pox Populi, who's one of my favorite hosts. Uh, we will have Millennial Woes uh, sitting in as well. We might even have Pox and Woes together as a team. I know that sounds like the name of a quaint English pub, maybe from the Middle Ages, but uh, they're a great team. They've uh, teamed up before. And I will be back uh, basically in about four weeks to, to sit in this chair again. And uh, so, but in the meantime, don't miss out because there will be more weekly episodes of Counter Radio. Thank you. <laughs>